Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. As we look at the book of Exodus... You may look and see God's graciously provides for his children, part two, which tells you that last week I did not finish the message, which I'm sure was a surprise to many of you, though it's been a while since that's happened. You know, I want to give some review for those of you who may not have been able to be here, and then just to remind us of what's happening. As we look at Exodus chapter 15, you can take your Bibles and turn there if you would, Exodus chapter 15. We're going to be a little bit past that, but if you're just wanting to peruse through the, through the verses or the passage real quick. As we came to our passage last week, we find things are not going well for the Israelites. After experiencing the euphoria of their miraculous redemption from Egypt and the crossing of the Red Sea and the defeat of the Egyptian army, they find themselves in dire straits. They're suffering from hunger, thirst, and impending war. Amazing, though, is the faithfulness of Yahweh as he graciously provides, even as the Israelites quickly go from an attitude of worship to an attitude of grumbling and complaining, exposing the bitterness in their heart. Our passage today, as it was last week, is full of imagery that points to Christ and identifies several themes that are woven throughout the fabric of Scripture. We read of God giving laws and statues for his children to follow, dire situations that will test the genuineness and depth of their faith, while in turn exposing the sin of bitterness that is manifested in their grumbling and complaining. But also we're going to see an amazing picture of Yahweh's faithfulness as he graciously provides the relief they need. Now this is captured in our opening verse last week, which I'll bring into your attention again. It's on the screen, but it's found in Exodus chapter 15. As we look at verse 25 and looking at verse, the second part of that verse, where it says, There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Father, I thank you that you are our healer. Father, we thank you for your law. Many times we think of your law and we think of rules and regulations that hinder us, that, that keep us encumbered and are burdensome. But Father, your word says that they are, they are wonderful. They are, they are the words of life. And we're to delight in your law. Father, show us the ways this morning as we go through the life of the Exodus and the Israelites. Show us the ways, and Father, that, that exposes that we too have a bitterness of heart. Show us the ways in which we too still struggle and trust in you. And Father, I pray that your spirit will come this morning and we will respond to his work as he directs our hearts to accept you, to trust. Father, as you test us, may we be found to be faith that is genuine and deepening. We praise in the name of Christ. Amen. Now, as you read through the passages these past two weeks, you might have been struck by the awful attitude of the Israelites. 
After miraculous demonstrations of God's great power in delivering them from Egypt, things now have settled down to a pedestrian pace, literally as they journey through the wilderness by foot. They're heading towards Mount Sinai and then towards the promised land. Israel's wilderness wanderings quickly devolve, as I said before, into grumbling and complaining as a lack of food and water causes rebellion and anger against Moses and God. Now, testing takes front stage as we look. Before, we've been looking at deliverance. Now, we're looking and testing against the uh, Egyptians. Now, testing is going to take front stage with the children of Egypt or children of Israel. Not only will they face hunger and thirst, but they're also going to face a preemptive attack by their distant cousins, the Amalekites. Now, Moses is going to be tested in his leadership skills. Now, as we learn in our studies of the letter of James and 1 Peter, testing is part and parcel of the Christian life. Dr. John MacArthur notes that testing in Scripture means to subject one to difficulty in order to prove the quality of someone or something. In this case, Yahweh desires to test the Israelites in the wilderness to prepare them for the promised land. Now, testing, again, is meant to strengthen our character and to deepen our faith and draw us nearer to God. However, in the reading of this passage this week, we discover that Israel does not fare well in doing so. One theologian marks, while God provides manna, quail, and water, the grumbling of Israel introduces a dark theme in this story. The theme is, will Israel respond properly to the God who has rescued them? And I would say that this passes throughout the generations and the thousands of years since then as God too tests his children today, the ones, those of us he has rescued from sin and the penalty and power of sin to whether or not we will respond to his testing today. Now all of these events, just like the ones that you and I go through, are ordained by God. Just as God tests us today, he's testing them. After delivering them from their captors, God tests their faith. It's easy for you and I to trust God and worship him when things are going well, is it not? But it's much more difficult when things are tough. We had read earlier that James encourages his readers in his letter to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. In other words, God wants us to be mature. However, their want, their lack of water and food lead them to complain and grumble against God and Moses. These three trials expose the bitterness of their heart and shows that they doubt the goodness, love, and promises of God. I would like you also to consider one more thing as we go through this is that testings prove something more than just whether you and I are deepened in faith or the genuineness of our faith. As I said last week, it also serves to prove the very character of God. And I would say the same for you, for your suffering, for your trials, for the temptations that you face is that your testings not only prove the genuineness and the deepness of your faith, but it also proves the very character of God. In our passage today, it demonstrates the gracious provision of Yahweh. One theologian remarks that on the journey from the Red Sea to Mount Sinai, the Israelites repeatedly reveal their lack of faith. Yet God continues to show himself faithful by providing for them. In Exodus chapter 16, verse 12, 
God declares that he will provide so that they shall know him that I or they shall know that I am the Lord your God. And he's going to do so in supernatural ways in his deliverance. So we started last week's message by three ways God graciously provides for his children. Even in their testing, even in their failure, we see God's success in proving that in spite of their failure, God is still faithful. So last week we saw that God graciously provides sustenance. And that's where we were last week. We saw that there's a problem. There's no food. There's no water. Their response to this is grumbling and complaining. Even though God had delivered them miraculously just days before, they quickly devolve into a bitterness of heart. The solution is God miraculously provides. Now, as you're going through Matthew 15, or excuse me, Exodus chapter 15, the first instance that we're going to see is after traveling for three days, only to find their only source of water too bitter to, too bitter to drink, that God tells Moses to throw a, a piece of log, a piece of wood into the water, and that miraculously makes the water sweet to drink. The second instance involves hunger. 30 days after leaving Egypt, their food and water supply has run out. Camped in the desert, they are miles away from any market to buy food. And once again, God graciously provides by sending a flock of quails to land nearby and also producing a wafer-like bread substance to appear with the dew in the morning. So for 40 years, God provided in this way. They just had to go out and collect these things. This leads to the third instance. He only provided what they need, the quail and the wafers. He only provided what they needed for each day, except for Friday when he provided enough to cover both Friday and Saturday. God commands them to rest for that day. It was a Sabbath day and to spend that time in worship to trust that God will provide. In the fourth instance of God providing is in Exodus chapter 17 where once again they run out of water. In anger, they charged Moses, give us water to drink. Does God want us to die out here? Moses, in frustration, cries out to Yahweh for help. And once again, God graciously provides in a supernatural way. God commands Moses to strike a rock with his staff and voila, water comes rushing out. In each and every way, God miraculously gives them what they need. Even in their rebellion, even in their frustration and their grumbling and complaining, God gives them what their body needs. And that's where we ended last week. This morning, we're going to look at the next two ways that God graciously, graciously provides for his children. Number two is God graciously provides protection. God graciously provides protection. Now, this is an interesting portion of scripture. Turn to Exodus chapter 17, and we're going to start in verse 8. I'll read out loud if you just read with me silently. For a reason, Amalek came out and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. And tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Verse 10, Joshua did as Moses told him, and they fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. And whenever, now here's what's interesting. Whenever Moses held up his hands, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hands, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. 
And in verse 13, And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. What an interesting story. Why God chose to, to miraculously give deliverance this way, I'm not quite sure. I don't know, understand all of the symbolis, symbols that are symbology or that, whatever that's going on here. But again, God supernaturally provides protection. As you may recall from last week, these Israelites have no war training. They have no equipment and no experience as warriors. They were former slaves just a month or so out of the chains themselves who knew only hard labor and suffering. They probably faced their distant cousins with a few swords, staffs, and farming implements. The Amalekites were the descendants of Esau. You might remember Esau, the brother of Jacob, who, was the, who, uh, who the children of Israel descended from. Instead of meeting and embracing their cousins, the Amalekites seek to wipe the Israelites from the face of the earth. However, God miraculously provides salvation. This time, though, was different from when they faced the Egyptians. At the Red Sea, God fought for them. Here at Rephidim, we see that God fought through them. And there's a difference there. God fought for them before, but now he's engaging them. Before, Israel was on the hill watching God destroy Egypt. But now God is watching as he works through Israel and they're down in the field and fighting. To me, again, this points to a spiritual truth that just as God defeated Satan through Christ's obedience, gaining our salvation, he works through us to defeat Satan's continued attack against God's children. You see, it's by grace that you and I are saved without any works of our own. There is nothing that you and I could do to secure our salvation. But it's also through God's grace that the Holy Spirit strengthens us today and commands us to fight sin and to advance the kingdom of God one heart at a time. Yes, Satan is a defeated foe and he will be utterly cast into the lake of fire at the end of the millennium. But God has also allowed him today to do battle with us. You and I are very aware of this as our hearts and our minds and the shame and the guilt that so much bear down on us as we fail day in and day out. You see, this is demonstrating God's plan for Israel and the Amalekites in verse 14. Look at verse 14 of Exodus chapter 17. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book. And recited in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the, mil, the memory of Amalek from heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner. Saying a hand upon the throne of the Lord, The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So two things are going on here. We see that God says, I will utterly destroy them and a battle is won, but yet we see that they will remain for generations to come. Instead of eliminating them as a future foe, God allows them to continue to be a thorn in the flesh, so to speak, for the Israelites. They were constant allies of the enemies of Israel in the book of Judges, as you read through. King Saul was commanded, you might remember, to utterly destroy them, but he did not. King David warred with them, as did the kings that followed after him. It wasn't until finally the tribe of Simeon finally exterminated them during the reign of King Hezekiah. But for hundreds of years, God allowed them to remain and be a thorn in the side. They were used as a source of testing, judgment, and punishment from God. 
Now, it's much in the same way that God uses today temptations, trials, troubles, and testings in order to strengthen our character and draw us near to God. Those attacks on the Amalekites were meant to do that for Israel, but yet we saw that they failed. But in the same way, God uses Satan and his schemes to test us, to strengthen us. He commands that we obey and that we trust him. And until that day when sin is finally removed, you and I are commanded to fight sin even to the point of shedding blood and to the point of death. This victory must have been a boon to both Moses and the people. Up to this point, they have been worried, complaining and grumbling about their parched throats and empty stomachs. Real issues for sure, but they are faced now with a bigger foe. Never in their lives had they had to fight a battle, face an enemy to the death, but here they are, ready or not, having to face them. Now Moses doesn't record the mood of the people as they marched into battle, but I can imagine it was mixed with fear, desperation, and maybe even anticipation. At the end of the day, God gives them a victory that surpasses any military projections and planning. The key to the victory is not their courage, it's not their boldness, it's not their weapons or even the size of their people, but it's the power of God that was demonstrated in the holding up of frail human hands and two compatriots who stand to help. Now I see that today. You see, God has called us too to face testings, to face the schemes of Satan. But you and I are not left alone. For you too have a her, and you too have an Aaron. An Aaron. The Christian life is not meant to be lived alone, but in community. Understanding that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. You see, we do not face Satan and his temptations alone. Scriptures encourages us that since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So how do we do that? For if you're like me, you say, but I lose focus of God each and every time that temptation comes, that testing comes, suffering comes whether it's a health issue, whether it's a financial issue, whether it's a death in the family, or whether it may just be the culture wars, it's so easy for us to lose focus. So how can I fix my eyes on that when my, I'm just looking for survival? There's so many of us. We're not prepared for the war. We need the Moses to lift up his hands. We need two people to hold up Moses and Aaron's, or uh, Moses' hands like Aaron and her. That comes to the church, for God has not left us alone. And see, here's the thing that I really want to challenge you, is so many of you are facing something today. You've come in today with your mask on. We've shaked hands. We've sung songs, sung songs. But yet, some of you are hurting right now. There is a pain in your life that you need to share. There is comfort here through the suffering that others have. 2 Corinthians tells us that. And we're to come together to do that. Do not walk alone. Scripture tells us that we're to serve one another, forgive one another, to bear one another's burdens, to honor one another, to submit to one another. 
It goes on to say that we're to accept one another, greet one another, be devoted to one another, teach one another, encourage one another, and also to provoke one another to good works. So we do that as a community. But so often, especially here in America, this Western view of Christianity is you're some solo ranger out there, just riding the range, fighting things by yourselves. And you wonder why the Christian life has no enjoyment, no victory. You wonder why things seem so difficult. Because you need someone to come and hold up your hands and allow that victory to be won. Bible tells us, let, not, let us not neglect the commands to pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and love and steadfastness and gentleness. He goes on to say that you and I need to fight the good fight of faith. We're going to take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you were made in the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And that's the power of the covenant community, the church, as we come and make confession of our faith. And then, yes, we do something that's counterculture. We hold each other to that confession. Today, anybody can say they're a Christian. Anybody can say they're evangelical. And many do. But yet you and I know there are not true many that have repented from dead works and turned and put their trust in Christ. You and I are to hold each other's arms up, so to speak, and encourage each other to walk. For God graciously provides protection. And we saw several weeks ago how he's given us the protection of the armor of God. But even then, you and I just need help learning how to use it, how to put it on correctly, and when and how to use it. God graciously provides protection. And I would share, brother and sister in Christ, use it. Do not face him alone. Whatever your troubles may be, whatever testings, We're to walk together, we're to fail together, and we're to grow together, loving one another. Would you join me in doing that? Would you commit this morning to doing so? Now that's scary because that means you're going to have to be transparent. You're going to have to take the mask off and let me see what you really look like. You need to let me see your pain and your hurt. And you're going to need to allow me to speak to it and the rest of us to speak to your lives and to embrace you. Does that mean I could solve it or anyone here can solve it? No. It just may mean that we just need to hold each other tightly and just pray to God together. That's why we're to pray for one another. Encourage one another. Which leads to number three. God graciously provides leadership to this grumbling, complaining people. In chapter 18, Moses is reunited with his wife and children and father-in-law, Jethro. Now, the last time we left Moses and his wife, there is a little bit of problem going on there as uh, God requires Moses to circumcise his sons. And you might remember that little mysterious portion of Scripture where God was ready to kill Moses because he had not done so. Him and his wife have some type of tiff, and eventually she cuts and circumcises his young boys and throws it at his feet. Here's a reunion. And in Exodus chapter 18, look at verse 8. We read that Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake and all the hardships they had come upon him in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And here's a side note. Not only do we need to give prayer requests, but we really need to start giving praise requests. 
We need to share with others what God has done for me. That may be the very way that God gives us hope. But going on in verse 9, And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, and that he delivered them out of the hand of Egypt, or the Egyptians. In verse 10, Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord God who delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods. If I did not know before, I do now know so. Because in this affair, they dealt arrogantly with the people. Now this has got to be like a fresh breath of air for poor Moses, who's had to deal with nothing but demands, bitterness, rumbling and complaining from the Israelites. In celebration, they make a sacrifice to God and they enjoy a meal together with elders as they look at the successes that God has brought them through. The next day we read Moses begins his daily routine of meeting with people to hear their disputes with one another. Now think of this, two million people plus people coming with their complaints and problems. You can imagine what's going on through Moses. What are you thinking? How exhausting that must have been. Now this had been going on since they left Egypt and it doesn't mean, seem like anyone is stepping up to help Moses or give him some advice. Hey Aaron, where are you? Oh, I'm just over here holding your staff, Moses. Keep going. Here comes Jethro, an outsider, who sees what's going on and he gives Moses some great advice. And you see that portion of scripture. We'll just give you a paraphrase. He says, what are you doing? You need to set up good men, qualified men who fear God. And what you need to do is you need to teach the people the statutes and the laws of God and then set up captains and people of those who can listen. Set up thousands, ten thousands and go on and get all the way down to tens and, and have people then help do your work. Spread it out. Fortunately, Moses listens to the advice and he does so. You see, God uses Jethro to dispense some much-needed advice and help. Again, this is how God provides. Many times, God gives us an abundance of wise men and women to help us. Proverbs chapter 4, 11 uh, instructs us that where there is no guidance, a people fall. But in abundance of counselors, there is safety. Again, I think this is something that's remarkable about the church of God. They no longer seek the counsel of elders and their pastors and other godly men and women in the church. I'm old enough to remember a time where a pastor could go and visit without calling, texting, or making some type of appointment. Where he could actually go and speak to someone's life. And they would be respected and thought thankful about it or be thanked about it. Seems like we live in a day and age now. The pastor is the last one to hurt. I've been in this church, and I was the last one to hear that someone actually had surgery. It's just, just we live in this society where we're now so closed off. We don't seek advice. And I have to tell you, every problem, every uh, the wrong decision I've ever made in my life has been decisions that I've made without the counsel of other good, godly men and women. Even today, God graciously, though, provides leadership for his children. In Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul writes that God has given apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And just as Jethro gave Moses the quali qualifications for the, these leadership, uh, leadership position, 
Scripture gives us qualifications for leadership and service. And you and I must remember this as we come together as a covenant body. We must not neglect these commands in selecting men and women to lead us. In addition, Scripture commands us to submit and to pray for those in leadership. But it's not just pastors who are subject to these requirements, but also those who are children of God in Titus chapter 2. He tells Titus to teach what accords to doctrine. He says, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent behavior, not slanderers or slave to much wine. They are to teach what is good and to train the young women to love their husbands and children. To be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. He goes on to say, for the younger men to be self-controlled, to show yourself in all respects, to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity and dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned. So the opponent may not be put to shame, or may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. You see, you may not see yourself as a leader today, this morning, but the definition of leadership is one who influences others. It's not primarily about position or a given responsibility or even expectations. For all of us influence others, either for good or for bad. We would do well to hear to Jethro's advice to recognize that you and I represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about statues and laws and make them to know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. You and I do this ourselves, whether you are a pastor, teacher, deacon, or whatnot. You do this when you share God's word in your counsel to others, in your parenting and in your life example. We do this with our intercessory prayers for others, our praise of others' conduct, and even what we like on Facebook. Does the counsel that you and I give to even to our unlost or to our lost friends and family, do we give them biblical godly advice? Or do we just share with them some secular hallmark type things? Many of you know that I'm a chaplain for the city of Orange for the fire department. And when I first came on, they sent me to a uh, national federal um, uh, chaplain conference, and I remember standing there. And there's there's and there's fire chaplains, police chaplains, hospital chaplains, and as the head of the chaplain national level came up, she for the most part really just said, you know, that you we're not here for religious reasons. We're really just a hallmark card. And I'm thinking, you know, if I'm going to give advice to someone who is hurting, that's going through, I better do better than just a Hallmark card or a Joel Olstein type little word of advice. They can go watch Oprah and Dr. Phil for those types of things. But how often do we give the word of God to others? Well, wait, they're not asking for that. Well, what else do you have? Let me ask you, friends, what of value do you have to give anyone other than the word of God? You have nothing. I have nothing. If I stand up here and just give you my mere opinion, we should have ended 40 minutes ago. Is that too harsh? Think about it. The only thing of value I have is Jesus and the promises of his word. I just threw my message all up. I just blew it up, just like that. So in all these three ways, God graciously provides for Israel 
in substance and protection and leadership. And here's the key. And this is why I say God graciously provides. Because though Israel is faithless, bitter, hard-hearted, filling their time with grumbling and complaining, God still provides all that they need. Instead of judgment, they find redemption. Instead of condemnation, they find salvation. God is a generous, gracious provider. In these passages, Moses writes that the Lord is our healer and the Lord is our banner. God gives them the law and says, do this. They sin and rebel and God responds with the gospel. Grace. Are you getting the connection with you and I today? God loved us when we were what? Yet sinners. But still, God loved us and died for us and chose us. Two weeks ago in our catechism, it correctly pointed out that the law of God requires personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience. It went on to state that you and I are to love God with all our heart, our soul, and our mind, and our strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. It goes on to state that you and I, uh, what should be obvious to you and I, that God forbids that we should, what God forget, forbids we should never do, and what God commands should always be done. However, you and I know that this is impossible for us to do in our own power. Like the Hebrew children, you and I have failed to love God and love others. And instead of worshiping God and encouraging others to be strong in their faith, the Hebrew children doubted God. You and I are no different. Before we are harsh or think harshly of them, we must understand that you and I are walking the same road. The circumstances may be different, but the results are the same. However, just as then, God graciously provides. As they continue to disobey, God graciously provided. Now I want to jump here because I want to make sure that I finish this part. That even though they sin, God graciously provides. And I think as you're seeing the connection that you and I, even when you and I fail testing, even when you and I find or fail, excuse me, temptation, God provides. God's grace still covers. The Bible tells us in Romans 8.1 that there is no condemnation to those that are in Christ. And so that ought to cause you and I not to be bitter and to grumble and complain, but God's kindness towards us is to cause us to repentance. And I would challenge this morning, even in your temptation, even in your failure in, in testing, let that lead you to repentance and lead you to uh, praise and worship God. Now, through all these testings are found in, in, in the passage today, through these testings that are found, you and I see some wonderful word pictures of Christ and the gospel. And I want to spend the majority of my, the rest of my time here. And I may have to go through quickly, quicker than I like. I hate to do this. <sighs> we have to. This is too rich for me to stop here or to, to go through this lightning quick. Ah, this hurts. You're going to have to come back next week. Because we haven't even reached the most important fun part about the passage of Scripture yet. You have to see the images that God gives here as we look at the wonderful grace of God, as he provides for those who are still in rebellion against him. You and I 
find ourselves in the mirror of this pages of Exodus. And I would challenge you today as we end this point, looking forward to go into the next point, is the gospel is here. So let me end with this. I challenge you, see the church as the people who are here to hold your hands. See the leadership of the church and yourself as one who needs to pursue holiness and be qualified to give the type of advice that we need to share the gospel. Let us all be like Jethro's who praise the name of God as we see the way that God provides even in our sin and our failures. There we had bowed and there we had closed. Where's your team? Would you go ahead and come on up? Would you take a moment? Would you just consider the words of God? Would you consider how much God loves you? And in that consideration, think often this week of how you might have failed him even this today. In your heart, in your rebellion. Have you joined in the sin and the error of the Hebrew children in grumbling and complaining in what God has given and how he's provided? Would you see that the testings that you go through, the sufferings you're going through, is designed by God to strengthen your character, to test and deepen your faith, and to draw you near to God? Would you do so today? Would you commit to following him, rejoicing even in your failures. But yet even in our fears, let us hope and challenge ourselves through the Holy Spirit to pursue God, even in testing. Father, give us wisdom to do so. Father, I'm a weak. I see the testings coming many times, but yet I try to face them alone. I don't seek out godly wisdom many times. And Father, I'm even tempted many times not even give godly advice because what would people say? They wouldn't accept it. And so we water down or we compromise your word. Let it not be so by your children. Continue to work through this message, Father. As we see the law, we see sin, but yet we see your wonderful grace. And even in the testings, let us see how you're proving yourself faithful, providential, and sovereign. We thank you for this in your name. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.